As you're sitting down, if you want to get out your Bibles with me and turn to Isaiah. Again, working our way through the prophecies of the Christ in Isaiah. This morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, and you can read along with me. It should be up on the screen as well. So we look at this chapter, verses 1 through 10. Starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the corbra, and a weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not destroy, hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You know, I'm excited about this series in Isaiah because it gives us a different perspective on Jesus. If you're like me, grew up in a Christian home, and you've heard the Christmas story over and over and over again, uh, Christmas time was, was one of the best times for our family worship. And my parents were not, are not super Christians, but they just brought us together. One of the reasons why I love the Advent wreath is because I grew up with it. And they would bring us together and divide the Christmas story up into four parts and throughout the month of Christmas just read us a chapter in Luke and then maybe a chapter in Matthew. Read it, light a candle, and pray with us. And so we know the Christmas story really well. If you were blessed to have that kind of upbringing, I know many of you weren't, but many of you do cherish it. Those of you who weren't, you have the chance to pass it on to your kids. If you had that kind of upbringing, you know the Christmas stories well. But we always kind of see the prophets just as this shadow in the past. It's kind of the cherry on top of the Christmas story. We see Christ, and as we look at him, we kind of look past to him, and occasionally at Christmas time, we see these shadows in the past kind of a confirmation of what we already know about Christ, just beautiful poems about who he is. But that's not at all how the original readers would have seen these texts. When these prophecies were written, there were real people with real problems coming to God, and this is the answer he gave. And sometimes I think we forget that there's an answer in these passages. So what if we were just for this Christmas series, to look at things from their perspective, to put ourselves in their shoes. And instead of looking back at the prophets as a shadow, 
we walk back and place ourselves with them and look forward through the gloom to see the glories of our Savior in a different way. The prophets offer us a chance to see Christ with new eyes, a different perspective in place and time, to look at the Savior and maybe, just maybe, see something different that will help us cherish Him more. So this morning, I want you to take a walk with me. We still have two weeks to Christmas, so we're going to walk past the stable and the manger, past the wise men and the shepherds and the angels, past Simeon and Anna, and all the way back to the time of Isaiah and put ourselves in their shoes and look forward. So if you would, play along with me. Put yourselves in the the shoes of a 6th century B.C. Jew. That's when this oracle is written. The nation is in shambles. Judah is shrinking. The economy is terrible. Israel is on the brink of becoming a vassal state. In just a few generations, the king is going to be stripping gold out of the walls of the temple to give it to other nations just so that they won't invade. That's how bad things have gotten. You know, it's easy for us to, uh, to just say those things as, as almost historical oddities from a safe perch from afar, but think of what that would mean for the average Jewish person walking around Jerusalem on a daily basis. The nation is decaying before their eyes. The government doesn't have money to keep up the walls anymore, and they know that the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Israelites are on the outside It's probably hard to find good work because the economy is inflated as they're shipping gold to other countries. You know that maybe family or friends or your father or your brother might have to go to war. It could happen at any time. And you certainly know that you'll have nothing to leave to your children, no legacy. And what's worse, on top of all of this fear and turmoil. What's worse is every day as you walk through Jerusalem, you look up at the Temple Mount that you can see from the entire city and you know the reason you're in predicament in this predicament is because God did it. The prophet has been walking around Jerusalem declaring, God has forsaken us. It has been generations since the nation has worshipped God as a whole. There have been some good kings, but nothing seems to last. And if you're a Jew in 740 B.C., maybe you're a genuine believer who wants to hear this letter. Maybe you're not, but it doesn't really matter because you know the judgment has already been given. God has turned against you and the exile is coming. The prophet has already told you that God is going to punish the nation. He's had enough this time. There is no mercy coming. God himself said he will cut down the tree of Israel. And politically, there's no hope either. You have this, you have this king Ahaz. He's, he's in the line of David, but it's been generations. And he's being bullied around by Pekah this Israelite king to the north, he's not of David's line. He's a pretender to the throne. And worse, he's a puppet king of Syria. This looks nothing like the promise to David that some, a son would sit on his throne. 
There is no strong man to defend Israel. Israel has no hope of going back to its former greatness. And in the midst of this, Isaiah comes crying in the streets, telling the people, this is what the Lord has said. See, friends, behind this text, this text that we usually read in the context of, context of Christmas and read back, if we can step behind it, the cry behind this text is, how long, O Lord? Will, will you continue to punish us? Is there no hope? Is there no mercy We've sinned against you so much. Will you save us or not? Will you really destroy your people? Have you really given up on us? In Isaiah chapter 5, before the text that Joshua preached so well last week, God gives this verdict on Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, he calls Israel, his, his vine, his plant. We're going to talk about that today. But this is the background to it. Let me sing for my beloved my song of love concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat, and in it he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Oh, now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there for me to do to my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It will be devoured. I will break down its walls and trample it down. I will make it a waste so that it cannot be pruned or hosed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds so that they will not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. God has says, I am cutting down the vineyard. I am done with you. And so the cry of Israel is, how long, O Lord? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you really abandon Israel? Will you really abandon the house of David? Will you let the vineyard die? And in the midst of that cry, Isaiah brings this new oracle. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Come forth a shoot from the stump. No mistake that he's using this plant language. He's chopped down Israel, torn out the vine, and all that's left is a dead old stump. You ever had an old stump in your yard? Remember my grandparents had this ancient massive oak stump in their yard. I used to mow their lawn all the time and I'd get to clunk the lawnmower over. So it was, you couldn't get it out. It had been there longer than I can remember, probably longer than I'd been alive. But the roots were everywhere. There was no way you could dig it out without, with all, all kinds of heavy equipment and chemicals and even then you'd have this 
massive hole in the ground. So it just sat there, this hunk of dead wood, for generations. Might as well have been a rock. Couldn't move it, couldn't get around it, and certainly no life was coming out of it. That's the picture that Isaiah gives of the house of David. It's a dead stump that Israel is stumbling around in its yard. And when Isaiah writes this, it's been 200 years since David has been on the throne. Ahaz is very much the lesser son of greater fathers. He looks nothing like David. In fact, in the text we read last week, it's almost insulting that, that, that God has humbled Ahaz and said, look to a little baby Ahaz. Even the babe, the babe that has my spirit would be stronger than you, Ahaz. That's the kind of political leadership that Israel is looking to. For all intents and purposes, the line of David is dead. And yet the prophet says that out of a dead stump, God will bring new life. It's like after the fall, you go out in the springtime, and if you're like me, you didn't rake your leaves well enough. So you go out and you, and you clear the leaves away from the ground, and you just see that little bit of green life poke through. He says, out of the dead stump of the house of David, I'm going to bring salvation. Tells us a little something about how God is going to work, doesn't it? Not with fanfares from above, not with scenes of glory, a little shoot that grows out of the house of David. Doesn't look powerful, doesn't look mighty, but it is a little hope of life. But it's also interesting, he hides a few more hints in the way he talks about this shoot. He says the shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. A couple of things to think about here. You know, he, he doesn't say the stump of David. He goes back to David's father. First, it's fascinating to me, after 200 years, they still know who David's daddy was. That tells me, no one has touched Israel like David in 200 years. Can you name the dad of one American president? John Adams doesn't count because his son served in office too, right? Let alone one 200 years ago. No, David had such an amazing impact on Israel that they still remember his daddy. But on top of that, he doesn't say the shoot will grow out of the stump of David. See, that might have been expected. Say, oh good, I'll, I'll raise up another son of David. Maybe Ahaz will finally have a good son. Maybe Ahaz will have a baby and he'll finally be sort of Davidic. And then we can reasonably become Israel again. It's a, a good, God is going re, to regrow the line of David. But he says, no, 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 no. The shoot's coming out of the stump of Jesse, David's dad. Why? This is better than just the son of David. This, this is the new David. This is the line truly reformed. A king as great as David was 
in the line, yes, but not simply a son. That wouldn't have been surprising to Israel at the time. For Israel, David, this great king, was synonymous with their deliverance. The one great king. But also, you notice it says the shoot, the stump from the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots will bear fruit. Why does that matter? That's an odd thing to say. I think we all get the picture of, oh, good, it's, it's, there's growth there, but why does it have to bear fruit? Remember Isaiah chapter 5? Why did he plant the vineyard? To bear fruit. And all he got was weeds and bad grapes. God had planted Israel to produce righteousness. And all they produced was evil. And so that's why he destroyed the vineyard. And God says, no, I will bring forth a shoot who actually brings forth righteousness. I'll make another David who actually brings peace. You know, I can't help but... uh, but relate this a little bit to our time. The uh, 2000, 2016 was a doozy of a year in the news. We're about to put this one in the books, and I'm thankful, but uh, I'm also kind of glad to see it go. Uh, the, the, to me, the entire political season played out a little bit like that Steelers Wheels song. Got clowns to the left of me and jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. But on a more serious note, the amount of scandal and ungodliness that's pervasive in our political system on both sides of the aisle makes it awfully hard to believe that there's anyone in significant power that can really bear the fruit of righteousness. That's not that different from the situation that the Jews found themselves in, looking at all of their political system and saying, where is just one man who will truly be righteous? It's not asking that much. How hard is it to have just one king who will actually be good? And in the midst of that, Isaiah promises them this new David. Hope springing from the line of a dead king. But the interesting thing about this passage is, Isaiah keeps surprising us. He, he starts with something Something small and mysterious, a shoot growing out of a dead stump. But then the passage accelerates, like a train going down a hill, gaining speed. This, this king quickly grows and grows and grows. And already in verse 2, there's something shocking. This little shoot becomes fairly mighty, fairly fast. In verse 2, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Why is that significant? Well, the the Spirit of the Lord plays this strange and fascinating role in the life of David. I'll give you the quick summary. If you go back through the the book of 2 Samuel and you you look at David's career, the Spirit of the Lord keeps popping up. The Spirit of the Lord fell on Saul and empowered him until his his great sin that, that takes the nation away from him. The Spirit of the Lord leaves him. And then you get this picture of of the prophet anointing David and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. 
And the Spirit is just a part of David's story from then on. When he does something powerful, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord residing on him. Sometimes when he gives speeches, the Spirit of the Lord is in him. And when he has his great sin with Bathsheba, you read Psalm 51, and his prayer is, don't remove the Spirit from me. So David has this intimate relationship with the Spirit of God that empowers him to be a good king. But you know what the interesting thing is? Look in the rest of the Old Testament for the Spirit to show up on a king. It just stops. Flip through the rest of 2 Samuel, all of the prophets. Doesn't tell us that it never rests on a king again, but we never see it. There's no other stories of the Spirit truly dwelling on and empowering the king. So Israel sees this. But wait a minute. You mean that the Spirit of the Lord will actually rest on a king again? That God himself is going to empower one of our rulers to do good? We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that in 200 years. He's clothed in righteousness. He's, look at how it describes the spirit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's telling you what kind of spirit is this. And it's no mistake how he describes it. He's not just piling on adjectives. He says the spirit of wisdom and understanding. God will empower this ruler to judge his people well. He'll have wisdom like the book of Proverbs. All of those difficult Proverbs that tell us how to discern difficult things, right? That, that life is so complex that even the Proverbs are confusing. Answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be wise in his own eyes, but don't answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like it. Okay, that's a tough one to figure out. Well, this king will have wisdom to discern in difficult situations. He'll have counsel and might. Those are words of war. Here's a, here's a king who will know how to move his troops and protect them. Israel then, us now, we know that there are big bad people out in the world. Whether that's ISIS or Assyria, doesn't matter. We know that we need to be protected and if we're real honest with ourselves, we're not as safe as we think we are. Here is a king who will actually have counsel and might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, Israel has no king that actually can lead them to God. Their leaders are stumbling around in darkness, hardly knowing God at all, and yet here is a king who knows the Lord. The shoot that looks so minor and unassuming to begin with will be filled with the Spirit to rightly judge, protect his people, and lead them to God. So think about this. A politician who has the full power of the living God to accomplish good tasks. No empty campaign promises. No equivocating on the meaning of is. The Spirit of the Lord will fill him to lead his people. Verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
This sounds like the perfect man of the Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. All of those Proverbs passages that, that we find so difficult that we have to strive for wisdom and draw near to God and it seems hard. No, this, this one, he'll, he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll be the man of Psalm 119 who dwells on God's, God's works night and day. Who's like a, the tree planted by streams of water in Psalms 1. Whatever he does prospers this good king. And then verse 3 and 4. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with the righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. This is a king who will actually be able to bring justice. Look at what it says. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide disputes by what he hears with his ears. I mean, friends, I think we can understand in a culture where we have a constant news cycle. It's almost as if we have to stand on edge anymore because you know you're not hearing the full story. At any given time, you know you're not. There's, a, there's, there's this whole cultural struggle that's going on. What is fake news? Because everybody knows that everybody else is spinning it. And so anytime you open up the newspaper or you turn on the television, you go, what am I not hearing? What am I not seeing? And this is a king who can actually see through the muck, who doesn't, who doesn't just decide with what he can see and hear. No, there's something intrinsically in him. Righteousness is like clothes that he puts on in the morning. So he comes to work with the tools needed to discern. I can't tell you how many times I have watched the news in the last year going, I just wish there was somebody who could make sense of this. Somebody who actually had the, the knowledge and information to tell me what to do with this. And isn't there anybody out there who knows how to solve this problem? And yet we go around and around and around again. There is no one with enough wisdom to truly judge what's going on. You know, just this past week, this, this rang very real and close at hand to me. Just this past week, there was a verdict passed down in one of the, one of the police shootings that happened earlier this year. An unarmed black man shot by a police officer, and the, the verdict came down this week. And I was just reminded, how many incidences this year where we looked at the news and, and went, God, why can't someone get to the bottom of this? Why can't someone get to the truth? I, I want the full truth to come out. I want to ache for the family. I want to respect police officers. I want to be aware if there is real racism. Of course, I hate that because of the gospel. God, how do we do this? Can't somebody figure this out? Can't somebody fix this? It feels like nobody has the ability to weed through it. All our responses seem so hollow, and the more confident someone is in responding, the more it seems like they don't really know it. But not this king. 
He won't have to judge with only what he sees with his eyes or only what he hears with his ears because righteousness is on him like a cloak. If you're like the Jews reading this passage, my guess is that you have a very similar question right now that they might have had. Why does this have to be a king? Right? We're, we're Step out of the, the Jewish moment for a second. We're good Americans. Why does this have to be a king? Why do we have to have a prince of peace? Why can't we just have peace? I like prince. I like peace. I don't like princes. I, you know, I, I like the idea of, of uh, the ceasing of, of war, but uh, conquering king. I don't know about that. Why does this have to be a king? Israel, Israel doesn't really like kings anymore at this point, I'm guessing. Had a, had a bad run with them. But look at how this king is described. It says, verse 4, By righteousness he will judge the poor. He's judge, he's in power. With equity decide disputes for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. See, I think we all want justice. Justice has become a byword for our society. Just like it's saying here, we want equity for those who are downtrodden, for those who are weaker, we, we want that. We want righteousness for the poor. We all want justice. That, that seems like a good thing. And yet we don't like the end of verse 4, where he will strike the earth with, earth with the rod of his mouth. That, that doesn't seem great. But something we forget is that, that justice... Justice isn't just some impersonal idea. See, in order for something to be just, wrongs have to be righted. Someone has to have the power to do it. Someone who thinks just thoughts but has no power whatsoever, no competency to actually right wrongs. Well, that's not justice. Justice isn't some impersonal idea. For, for justice to work, it has to, have, it has to have power. It has to have authority. It has to have, use an old word, regency. For justice to be justice, it has to have rule. It has to be a king. See, friends, for God to straighten out the world, for God to bring peace, he has to put down war. For God to bring, to, to uplift the oppressed, he has to push down the oppressor. For God to straighten out the world, he has to be in control. I think this has some pretty direct applications. We, like the Israelites, have a pretty fickle relationship with God's sovereignty. We want him to fix only the areas of our lives where we want to let him in. And after that, we want him to take a rain check and see us next week. But the truth of the matter is, in order for the, the peace to come, it has to come with the prince. He's the prince of peace. He's the ruler who brings peace. And just like the Israelites in their country, in order for him to bring peace into your life, you kind of have to let him be the king. I think sometimes we quote 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen, that God would come and heal our land when we haven't even been willing to put him on the throne of our hearts. We want him to bring joy and peace and all of this justice sounds great, but just don't straighten me out. 
This is a coming king. He's, he's a ruler. And friends, he has to be. He has to be powerful enough. He has to be mighty in order to be the kind of king that could even bring these things. He has to have the rod in order to break the oppressor. He has to have this mighty breath in order to judge. This was the promise the Israelites needed that some of them probably didn't want. A powerful king that will lead us to God. Friends, do we want that? Do we really want a powerful, mighty king who will take over and transform our lives and lead us in righteousness for his name's sake? Or are we a little more comfortable with a baby in a manger who just represents some nice things at Christmas time? It's just the spirit of hope and peace and, and joy. And isn't it nice that we can gather around that? We like the idea of death from life in verse 1. But don't send a mighty conqueror who will set all things right. Don't do that, God. That's a little much. Thanks for the babe in a manger. Don't put him on a white horse. Israel needed a king. We need a king. But look how the story changes. Again, Isaiah escalates. He grows, this constantly unexpected, gaining speed. This little shoot has become a mighty king who can set things right, who can end war, judge rightly, bring peace. And then in verse 6, the story changes again. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the, fat, or the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adler's den. Neither shall they hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So suddenly this king has gone from a mighty political figure, a powerful king who will judge rightly, superhumanly righteously, and it's gotten even bigger. Now this is a powerful king who can heal the world. Even animals cease their violence. That a, a child could lie down a leopard, and a wolf, and a lion. And no evil would happen. That he has his power over the whole world. Death and danger is averted. The Garden of Eden has returned to the earth with this king. See, the Jew listening to this at this point knows this, this isn't the work of David. David certainly built up the city of Jerusalem. He cleared the the ground for the temple. He built palaces for himself. But this is not Jerusalem. This is the Garden of Eden. Eden was built by God. That's not enough for this king to return Israel to her former glory. No, he intends to bring peace on earth, goodwill to 
towards men. A king who is mighty enough and good enough. And look in verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. So it's not just enough for Israel. All the nations will come and inquire of this king. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. All people in all of the world rightly relating to God and each other. This king will transform the world. And here we come to that point in the passage what the prophets and the readers could never have seen with this clarity. See, when, when Jesus comes, his disciples want him to be the king of verse 1 through 5. They want him to be the shoot from the stump of Jesse. They want him to be the new David, great David's greater son. But they expect him to have a kingdom in this world. They expect him to conquer Rome and, and to rule rightly, but, but in a place with bounds. Sometimes I think we talk about the disciples' confusion and the Jews' confusion at Christ as if he was something less because he was the spiritual Messiah. But friends, this is so much more. They weren't looking for the Savior of verses 6 through 9. They didn't understand that he came to save the whole world. See, Jesus the Messiah of Isaiah 11 wouldn't stop at winning Jerusalem or Rome. No, he will not stop until the knowledge of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. He would conquer sin and death. And now we know that the fulfillment of this passage comes in his second advent. This happens a lot in the prophets. It's one of the reasons I think that we struggle to read, read them when, when they take the beautiful work of God and like mountains in a distance where all of these many peaks and valleys, when you're far away, I used to, to live in the mountains and from time to time would visit the Rockies. And from far away, as you look out of Denver, Colorado, where my brother lives, you can see these mountains in the distance, and it just looks, just looks like a mountain range. It's just a bunch of peaks. But as you get closer, it takes hours and hours to drive there, and you find out that each and every one of those peaks is not just flat in the distance. No, there's peaks and valleys and, and miles and miles of gullies and eddies and trees and all of this stuff that make up this one mountain range. And the prophets talk the same way. We're looking far into the distance, like at mountains far away. They take the work of God and they just put it all on a flat screen because that's what they can see. And as we get closer, we start to see the peaks and the valleys. And As Christ comes on earth, he says, oh yeah, well, I am that king. I am the shoot from the stump of Jesse. But, but this, I, I'm, I'm going to, to plant a tree, the kingdom of God that grows and shades the entire earth, and all the birds will come and nest in it. We're going to start this small, and I will come a second time to bring a new Eden. 
So we get to see what they never saw, the beautiful peaks and valleys of the fulfillment of this. But interestingly, we find ourselves in the same place as these Jews. They read this passage longing for its full fulfillment. And yet so often at Christmas time, we just look at a passage like this and say, isn't that nice that it's done? Isn't that nice? Here, here Jesus was the son of David. Look, I, I've got it in my Bible dictionary. It says that it's fulfilled. That's just great. Friends, we stand between verse 5 and 6 with all of these Jews looking forward, going, when will the king come back? We're still waiting for the king. We know who he is. We've got a name for him now. We know what he's done, but we're still waiting for him to come back. And just like them, we stand in a world where there are no good leaders who truly judge with, beyond, with a knowledge beyond their eyes. There are no good leaders who truly bear out a pure fruit of righteousness. And we look for a king who can actually bring people together, who can actually judge righteously, who can actually bear true fruit, who can bring nations and people and races and tongues together in unity. And we still wait. Friends, Advent is not something that merely points backwards. This time of year, we too need a mighty king. We need justice. We need mercy. We need a ruler that can bring peace. We need a ruler that has the wisdom to judge better than the Supreme Court. We need a banner of the nations that can bring true racial reconciliation. We need a king who can lead us to God. And just like the Jews who heard this oracle for the first time, maybe from the mouth of Isaiah himself, we wait for his coming. I think the Jews would have seen something in this passage that we so often forget in our celebration of Christmas now. We need more than a little hope and peace and harmony and happy thoughts. And, and don't get me wrong, I love, all of, I love all of the Hallmark Christmas joy, right? I got a nine-foot fake Christmas tree. I am not a man who does not appreciate the Christmas season, all right? But the world packages this up, and so often we accept it as, as just a little hope and love and harmony, and it's, Christmas is really just the mamas and the papas song, and it's just, all, just perched there in December for us to feel a little better about ourselves. Friends, the, the world is far too dark for that. There's real evil, real injustice, real oppression that has to be made right by someone who's mighty enough strong enough to set the record straight, wise enough to discern what's going on, and righteous enough to lead people in holiness. Christmas doesn't just point us back. It points us forward to a future victory where this king will come again. Now, Advent simply means arrival. It means coming. And this time of year, 
we wait for and celebrate God's coming. We light that Advent wreath one by one, the, the light growing, to remind us of what it felt like to wait for his coming. But what if the whole reason we need a reminder is because we've forgotten that we're still waiting? We wait for the coming king. So this, this time of year, friends, this Christmas, let's not only look back. Let's look forward. We have a coming king who will transform the world in our deepest, darkest nights here. We have hope that the king will come, that though all of our earthly cities fall, there is a root from the line of Jesse who will save the world. And this time of year, we have a world that needs to hear it. Friends, the shoot of Jesse is not done. The salvation that started small will grow to cover the earth, but now is the time of salvation. Why, why do we raise all of our money for missions at Christmas time? Because the message is the same. The king is coming, and now is the time to bow and worship him. Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples rejoice, for the Lord comes. And just like those passages that we read at Christmas time for his first coming, make the valleys low. Clear the path. The king is coming. Friends, we stand right there waiting for his second coming, crying out to a world, he's still coming. Friend, let's seize this opportunity for our sake, for our hearts, for the sake of the nations, the shoot of Jesse is coming again. The root of the line of Jesse will be a banner for the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not abandon us. You did not leave us in our sins but light has shone in the darkness life has come from death and we look forward to the day that all peoples will come to Christ the banner of the nations the holy king we long father for you to make it right I know that there are people in this room right now broken families, broken homes, past abuse, all of these injustices, people who are meek and downtrodden, who long for a righteous king. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Be our righteous king. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.